Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I am your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What up, what up, y'all? I am super excited for today's episode. Today, we're beginning our first official Bible study on Catholics with Bibles. This is something I've been wanting to do because this is something I think a lot of people miss out on when they leave college maybe, or maybe they've never never experienced it. And this is obviously not going to be a traditional Bible study where <laughs> we sit around a circle and I ask you questions and you answer my questions, and uh, obviously, but we're going to walk through the text. It's still going to be the same length of the podcast. It's still you know, just about 25, 30 minutes or so, because I really still want this to be bite-sized, digestible, but at the same time, something that's going to go deeper than, well, what do you think about this? You know, because, uh, and if you're listening to this and you lead Bible studies and, and that's your go-to question, no offense intended, like at all, it, the spiritual interpretation, like we've talked about on the podcast before, the spiritual interpretation of scripture, it is still, it's still beautiful. It's still valid, but it's built on the literal interpretation, right? So we have to know what does the text literally say understand that properly and then from there we can understand okay now how does this apply to my life what does this mean to me so throughout this series when we go through uh, first that first and second thessalonians is which we're going to be going through i will be you know going into some spiritual interpretation organically it's just going to kind of happen as you read scripture but at the same time i'm trying to be true to saint paul's words here as well Try to be true to the sacred page, the sacred text of scripture in order that we may then apply it to our lives, to grow in holiness, to grow in virtue. So this is Catholics with Bibles. And as always, I need to start off with the Greek word of the day. Greek word of the day is uh, pistis or pisteuosin, which is more of the word I want to use today which is going to be translated as um, believers. Pistis is just faith, right? Uh, Pisteusen, hard to say, Pisteusen uh, is translated as believers or one who believes or one who has faith or one who is faithful. It can be translated a few different ways. And that's going to be important here in a little bit with 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. But before we dive into the text of 1 Thessalonians, we have to kind of get a background on Thessalonica. So one of the things, um, we translate this as uh, Thessalonians, but they're, they're more properly should be called Thessalonicans because it's Thessalonica. Uh, it's just it's English translation is how we kind of say it. But uh, Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. So... Most people know some Greek history. If you don't, uh, quick refresher, Alexander the Great conquered a giant chunk of the known world from Greece all the way to India. And what happened was after he conquered, he, you know, he wept because there was no, nowhere else to conquer. Um, little do you know, here was America. But anyway, um, but anyway, he died without an heir and his kingdom was broken up and governed by his, some of his head generals. And so after Alexander the Great's death, one of his generals founded the province or governed the province of 
Greece, Macedonia, and set up Thessalonica as his capital. So Thessalonica is a port city. So because of its importance within Macedonia and because of its location right on the water, it became a very prosperous city, a very powerful city, a very wealthy city with wealthy, smart inhabitants. Now, you know, fast forward a couple hundred years, you have the expansion of the Roman Empire. Obviously, the Roman Empire eventually conquered Macedonia, but Thessalonica had a special place because of its location and because of its uh, willingness to work with the Roman authorities. So Thessalonica was granted the title of free city within the Roman Empire. And because of its title as free city, it held uh, special privileges uh, within the Roman Empire. It wasn't treated as a conquered territory necessarily. So something like the city of Jerusalem, right, where you, there was this tension between the, the Romans and, and the uh, Israelites. There, that, that tension wasn't really there. In fact, it wasn't there at all with the Thessalonians. It was a free city, and in order to show their thankfulness uh, for being a free city, they quickly adopted Roman gods and emperor worship. Right, so they quickly adopted this to, short, to show their thanks um, for this title of free city and their acceptance of Roman rule. They also had other deities. They also incorporated Greek and Egyptian gods into their cult in Thessalonica, uh, because all of these gods brought them prosperity and protection and privilege and all these things. So we first hear about Thessalonica in actually Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17. And this is going to be an important context before we get into the letter. So in Acts 17, we read this. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, so three weeks, right? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. This is probably uh, the circumcision party or just the Jews that, you know, obviously didn't accept Christianity. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So we know that Paul and Silas and Timothy, you know, they're traveling around in the book of Acts to the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and they're proclaiming Christ. They're proclaiming the risen Christ. Uh, Paul had his experience of Christ 
It's recorded in Acts on the road to Damascus. And this changed Paul's life, obviously. So he's traveling around. He ends up in Thessalonica. But like I said, the history of Thessalonica is they are extremely loyal to the Roman Empire and therefore to the Roman cult, to the Roman religion. They, there is as emperor worship because they believe that when the, you know, the emperor is this semi-divine figure and when he you know, dies, he becomes this, this god and there's emperor worship and there's worship of the, of the Roman gods and all these things. And part of that reason was because, I mean, they were a free city. They were extremely grateful. They weren't under the Roman thumb like many other cities were. They were prosperous. They were wealthy. Yet Paul goes and proclaims the Christ to them and we read that, you know, not a few of the leading women and, and, and people, so maybe probably Greeks and Jews converted to Christianity when Paul proclaimed Christ. And this, I mean, this done ticked them off, right? This Because this really was a threat to the, you know, the agenda of the time. This was a threat to the current way of doing things because you can't tell me that I've been worshiping a man as God, and then all of a sudden that not be the case, right? Because that that destroys the Roman authority because Roman authority was partly contingent on Caesar being divine. Caesar can make the decisions that he made because he was a divine figure. And it also helped that he had the you know largest army in the world at the time. <laughs> that didn't hurt. Um, and so this is the background of first and second Thessalonians. So first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians, uh, most scholars argue and most scholars agree that this is the first of Paul's letters. So if it is the first of Paul's letters, it is the oldest Christian text that we still have. It's older than the gospels. It's older than his letter to the Romans. It's older than acts of the apostles. It's older than any other letter in the new Testament, any other writings in the new Testament if this is truly Paul's first writing, um, then this is um, the oldest letter. And part of the reason they say that is they assume he wrote this basically right after he was kicked out. And we'll get to kind of why as we go through the letter. But we read in Acts that he was there. He was only there for three Sabbath days. He was only there for, I mean, really, I mean, you can take that literally as three weeks or you can translate it as, you know, he preached on one Sabbath day waited a few weeks, preached on another Sabbath, and he just preached on three different Sabbath days. Regardless, we know he wasn't there for a long time. It was as little as three weeks or, you know, at best, maybe three months, right? Somewhere in that time frame. But even within that short time frame, people converted. People renounced the pagan gods. They renounced Caesar worship, emperor worship, and accepted Christ as their savior. All right, cool. So we can now, having this background in view, start looking into 1 Thessalonians. So we're going to see four major sections uh, in Thessalonians. It's a short letter, right? It's only five chapters. So it's not like there's 16 chapters like in the book of Romans, in the letter of the Romans. And the first section is literally one verse long. It's chapter one, verse one. It's the the address, which is a very traditional um, address that most Greek letters start with. Then we have this next section, which is one chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to chapter 3, which is this uh, section of thanksgiving. Paul's going to be constantly thanking 
God for the Thessalonians and various for various things. And then 4 through 5:22, that's he gets into a bit of exhortation. He is trying to call them on to live a certain way. And then finally the conclusion in in 5:23 to the to the end. So that's kind of the general outline of 1st Thessalonians. And then with that, there's some few key themes, but one of the arguably the the, the key themes is this idea of family. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses the word adolphois, which is translated brothers or brothers and sisters, an average of one time every four verses. That is more times than any other letter of Paul. You'll find that while reading this letter, there is a passionate love for this congregation. There's a passionate love that Paul has for his brothers and sisters, the Thessalonians. Um, and so now that we're kind of primed and ready to look at the text directly, I will say uh, I'm pulling a lot from Nathan Eubank. Nathan Eubank wrote a fantastic commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, you can find, it's it, it's from the series of Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. It's a cheap book. It's like 15 bucks. Uh, if you want um, to read this yourself, there's some beautiful quotes. I'll read some quotes that, that he quotes from various theologians or saints or doctors of the church. Um, I'll pull uh, from that a little bit as you read, but I do use a lot of what he says in, in order to work through this Bible study. So I encourage you, if, if you want to kind of get in more detail, because I obviously won't be able to get in as much detail as he gets into in his commentary, but it's a fantastic, it's, it's Nathan Eubank, his commentary from the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. All right, so with that, let's, let's look at the introduction. So verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. We read, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. All right, so um, real quick, uh, just so you're aware, if you're reading along with your Bible with me, I'm using an ESV translation. It's because I have an ESV Greek English New Testament that I that I pull from, uh, and so your translation might be a little bit different at points, but hopefully it's it's similar if you're using the RSV or NRSV, which I encourage you to use because that's a fantastic translation. Um, all right, so looking at um, this greeting, so namely. We have three figures, Paul, Silvanus, and Tim Timothy. Most scholars will argue that Silvanus is uh, the Silas that we read about in Acts. Uh, it's not totally uncommon for people to, have, uh, to go by different names in the Old Testament times. And so Adar the Silvanus is the Silas that was with Paul and Timothy when he was first in Thessalonica. And what's interesting here in just very, very first, you know, four words, um, is that this letter wasn't entirely written by Paul. We have three characters. We have Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So while obviously it is mostly Paul or predominantly Paul writing this letter, it is not only Paul. Silvanus and Timothy are playing a role in this letter. And they're playing a role in this letter 
and not necessarily just writing it down, right? Because uh, Paul didn't physically write his letters. He dictated it to a scribe. But the scribes are usually mentioned at the end of letters. Like in Romans in chapter 16, we have the scribe, I forget his name, uh, but he says, you know, I, so-and-so, who wrote this letter, you know, greetings, whatever it is, whatever he says at the in Romans 16. But this is not the case, right? This, these are not the scribes who wrote down this letter. These are people who are helping to author, they're co-authoring this letter to the Thessalonians, uh, partly because they know them, right? So this letter, odds are, was was written very shortly after Paul was, you know, escaped the persecution in Thessalonica. And so we have Silvanus and Timothy, who we read about all the time, especially in Acts. And then throughout Paul's letter, Timothy is mentioned just over and over again. At, you know, Philippians, you know, chapter 2, verse 22, he's a beloved brother of Paul. He's a traveling companion of Paul. They go way back. They're good buds. Um, and so to the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So instantly, very early on in Christian literature, there's a distinction between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very early on, we have this distinction. And it's not to say that it's never to downplay Jesus' divinity. Rather, it's to it's the acknowledgement that Jesus has revealed to us that God is Father and that He is Son, and they're not the same person. We have two persons. And later on in just chapter in verse five, we, we have mention of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned. The Numati Hagia, Hagio, the Holy Spirit. So we have very early on. This letter was arguably written around 50 to 60 AD. Very early on, we have this idea of Trinity. And while he, Paul, nowhere in his letters will ever say the words Trinity, he'll never say, you know, anything like the dogmatic, you know, statements that the church later confesses. We see these three persons here in the very first chapter in the oldest Christian text that we possess. Grace and peace to you. It says at the end of verse one, and this is a little bit different. Most Greek letters traditionally would say, you know, I so-and-so to you, the addressee, uh, you know, a prayer for you. And then they usually were uh, Karin, which usually means greetings. And we see this elsewhere. If you look at Acts of the Apostles, um, when the Brothers in Jerusalem write to the various churches. You know, they write the letters, and it says, greetings, right? Uh, Karen. But Paul twists that a little bit. He doesn't say greetings. He says, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Right? It's that this idea of charis and arene, grace and peace, or shalom in Hebrew. Shalom, peace. So it's a traditional Hebrew greeting. So we get into verse 2 now. So we'll read 2 through 8. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love 
and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So, lots to unpack here. We're not going to get into a fine tooth comb of everything, but there's a lot to say. So, like I said earlier, this is the beginning of section two, which is a good bulk of the letter, which is this, this idea of thanksgiving that Paul has for this infant Christian community in Thessalonica. So we read in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly or without ceasing, mentioning you in our prayers. So this elsewhere we'll see, you know, pray without ceasing. And there's obviously, there's a little bit of hyperbole here. There's a little bit of, you know, over-exaggeration, but only a little bit. Why do I say this? I say this because for Paul, it is possible to pray constantly. It is possible to be constantly mentioning the Thessalonians in his prayers. Why? Well, in, we know in Romans 8.26 that he says, make your lives and bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. That's in the present progressive sense, right? Where you are currently doing and continuing to do. You are currently making your life a living sacrifice and in extension, a living prayer to God the Father. Right? We see this in, in the Catechism in, in 20, uh, Catechism 2697, which I'll, I will be referring to um, throughout this uh, Bible study because it's beautiful, and why wouldn't we mention the Catechism um, throughout this? So we read in 2697 in the section on prayer. Prayer is the life of the new heart. It ought to animate us at every moment, but we tend to forget him who is our life and our all. This is why the fathers of the spiritual life in the Deuteronomic and prophetic traditions insist that prayer is a remembrance of God often awakened by the memory of the heart. We must remember God more often than we draw breath. But we cannot pray at all times if we do not pray at specific times, consciously willing it. These are the special times of Christian prayer, both in intensity and duration. So why can Paul pray at all times? It's because he prays at specific times. 
So he's giving thanks always for these Thessalonians. He's remembering them always. He's praying always because his life is a living sacrifice. He's constantly offering up his life to God the Father on behalf of others. In verse 3 we read, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is arguably the first time in Christian history in writing that we have the mention of the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And it's interesting because he says the work of faith. Ergu. Ergon is the word for work. The work of faith. I mean, that sounds weird, right? What is the work of faith? Well, elsewhere we have Paul in Galatians 5, 6. He says, you know, faith works through love. So we know faith isn't simply an intellectual assent for Paul. Our Greek word of the day, pistis, pisteu, pisteusen, the one who believes, the one who has faith, the one who is faithful. Faith is something you do. It is not something that you merely receive, even though you initially do receive the theological virtues, but they're still your virtues. Right? They're still your virtues. And this work of faith and this labor of love, this labor of love, I love that. It's such a visceral term. It's kaputes agapes. Right? This labor of love. And more literal translation of that is like the sweaty work of love. The sweaty work of love. Love is not something that's easy. And I think a lot of times in modern translations, something Nathan Eubank points out, and a lot of labor of love is something where, you know, say you have a hobby and your hobby is to, and Nathan Eubank uses this analogy of you, you know, are refurbishing an old car, which means you're constantly doing upkeep upkeep on it you're constantly polishing it and it's a labor of love because it's something you enjoy doing but that's not how paul means it here no he means it's a it's a labor it's the sweaty work of love you're willing the good of the other for the sake of the other even in spite of the fact that it's not it doesn't always it doesn't always feel good and nathan eubank also he quotes a guy named charles cardinal uh journey he says about this about the theological virtues. God gives us in Christ the power to assent to him. Yet it is my own assent. It's not just God's. It's my own assent. At times it will have caused me real anguish. Will have entailed victory over my passions. It is indeed my own. But it is due even more to God than to me. And the first thought that will come to my mind will be to say, thanks be to you, my God, for having given me the power to answer your call. To you be the glory. So these theological virtues of faith, hope, and love are initially gifts from God, but they're truly our gifts as well. They're truly our gifts as well. We can grow in them. The steadfastness of hope, which you cling to, in our Lord Jesus Christ. In our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that's a good place we're going to stop for the day. I know we're only, <laughs> we're only uh, three verses in, but we had to do some background work there, which is very needed. So next time we're going to finish chapter one, but also want to encourage you to pray through first and second Thessalonians. Start chewing on these words. Start letting the Holy Spirit speak to you. Because remember, we can't just leave this study of the sacred page as a merely intellectual affair. If it stops at the head and it doesn't impact the heart, and if it doesn't inspire your will to move, then something's wrong. Something's off, right? So I encourage you, bring this to prayer. Let Lord speak to you to move in you to connect that heart and the, and the mind. And next week, we'll move on. I'll see you next time, y'all. God bless. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much again for joining me on Catholics with Bibles. I'm really, really excited to continue this study with you guys. I love First Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Once again, don't forget to start reading and praying through this, reading ahead, grabbing Nathan Eubanks commentary if you see fit, or just tune in next week and we'll dive more in. If this is insightful for you, if you like it, if you enjoy listening, please don't forget to share. If you're on the iTunes store, don't forget to rate us. It helps people find us easier. Leave a comment. I'll see you next time, y'all. God bless.